Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, welcome. Matt, how are you today? I am fantastic. Actually, it's been a a great day. Um, You know, it seems like every podcast, uh, at least the good ones, talk about the weather on the front end, right? And we've had our first real break in the weather here on the West Coast, or at least here in Southern California. Today um, was the first time in a while I can remember going to work where it wasn't about, you know, 85 to 100. So we had a nice overcast day, and that makes for a good time when you spend a lot of time in the car. How are you, bud? I'm doing great. Like you said, I, I, I guess I was thinking of uh, how good my wrist shots might look by wearing, you know, some kind of sweater today. I had to dig it from the very bottom of the of the armoire, but I did find a sweater and, and it felt appropriate for for the day. Although uh, to continue the the weather small talk, I think this is short lived and I, I, I imagine we'll be back up into the 90s by the end of the week. Shut up. Yeah, no, it's um, September. This is definitely unusual for us. I too wore a sweater. I, I'd like one of those. Um, cool, like cool, C-O-O-L, cool, K-U-H-L sweaters. I it, This weather makes me want to go shop the Alps and Meters website. <laughs> so I, I hope it lasts. My wife hope it lasts. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, we'll, we'll, we'll put in the show notes the folks can shop our fall collection, you know. Totally, totally. Well, hey, we have a guest today, Greg. So rather than just kind of keep going back and forth with the uh, with the small talk and all that happiness, let's, let's respect this guy's time and just jump right in. Um, I'm kind of hearkening back to several episodes ago, we were kind of fortunate enough to be joined by Cole Pennington, right? And I remember introducing him as like a, a potential best-selling author of a hypothetical like romance watch genre. And today we are joined by the actual author of watch adventure fiction. That's right. It's diver, overlander, traveler extraordinaire. It's Jason Heaton with us today. Huge coup. Woo, the crowd goes wild. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. This is uh, this is a long time in the making. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we appreciate your patience with us. It seemed like it, it took a little while while we were on our hiatus. And then just by way of backstory, we were actually supposed to record about two or three weeks ago. And we we got the, the untimely and unfortunate news that we had a man down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I had a bit of impromptu surgery. I had a, an organ that needed to come out uh, pretty rapidly. So uh, that... That set me back a bit, but uh, you know, thanks for uh, thanks for bearing with me, and and now I'm actually able to sit upright without uh, you know feeling like I've been stabbed. So that's well, you a look good thing. you look fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, feeling good. Outstanding. Well, hey, Greg, why don't we get into it? We should. Um, let's do a, a wrist check and a poor check, and I think we should certainly start with our our guest, um, Jason. What's on your wrist, and uh, what's in your glass? Sure. Yeah. So. Um, you know, today is uh, the official launch of No Time to Die, which is the new James Bond film over in the UK. We don't we don't get to see it uh, stateside until uh, next week. Um, so I chose a Bond appropriate watch. I think this is the the proper Bond watch, if uh, you know, a modern Bond. And this is the uh, the CWC Royal Navy dive watch on a uh, James Bond striped strap. 
So this is this was an, an issued Navy dive watch from 1995. Um, so it's got the fixed spring bars, a quartz movement, um, that classic uh, Monin sourced case, um, which I, I just think is one of the more beautiful case designs. And uh, because of the fixed bars, you can only wear it with a NATO. So I, I picked a, an appropriate one for today. So that's what's on wrist, and then um, and then in the in my Pan Am glass here, I've got uh, I picked a really special one. I, I went down to the bar um, and I looked for something I hadn't had in a long time, and it's actually a twenty five year old Talisker. Wow! So yeah, really good uh, single malt. You know, Talisker is one of the the peatier of the of the single malt scotches. Um, not quite in the Lafroigs territory, but. Um, I don't know the, the 25 year aging makes it, uh, kind of mellows it out. It's a really, really nice sipper. So, and I, I, I gave myself a generous two finger pour here, so it should get us through. <laughs> As we you feel, should. Yeah. We feel honored not only to have, uh, you know, the appropriate wrist combination for, you know, a big theatrical release, but to have gone down to the bar and sought out a, a quite a nice bottle. So that's fantastic. Cheers yeah. to that. What about you guys? Matt, what do you, what's on your wrist and, and what's in your glass? Okay, so it, you know, I had forgotten about the Bond connection. Although coincidentally, I'm I'm wearing a, a Bond adjacent watch. Um, we have Jason on. I know Jason has. Uh, we I have seen anyway. I'm sure maybe other people have seen as well. Has recently acquired a new Omega Seamaster. I am wearing my Omega Seamaster. This is the oh, yeah. uh, you know the the Seamaster Pro. This is kind of the plain Jane black, and just absolutely love this watch. It's one of those, I think Jason, you know, I do have pangs of jealousy because if, <laughs> if I'd waited an extra year, uh, I probably would have the white one. I've, I've developed a, a thing for white dials over the past, maybe couple of years. Yeah. Um, I've got a, uh, I've got the white polar Explorer. I've got a, a white day just, and one of the watches that I'm kind of mulling right now is, you know, the, uh, the Weiss watch, the field watch in white. Oh yeah. Good one. And, uh, that Seamaster in the white dial is just an absolute stunner and it's going to look good forever. And it's just different enough to be, you know, the kind of thing that would draw the eye of anybody, I think from across the room and give you the tip of the hat in the, you know, the, the whisk gathering or whatever. Yeah. So well, you've got a good yeah. one on. I mean, that's a, there's they're such great watches. I think these, these Seamasters give, give any Rolex a run for their money and, and, you know, in terms of movement chops and, and capability, um, and then for, you know, half the price of a Submariner or, or, you know, not quite half the price, but, um, you know, they're just such high quality watches and I, I just love, uh, I love Omega. So I'm, I'm really pleased to, to have mine and it's really cool to see you wearing yours. That's, that's a proper bond bond day watch. So yeah, kudos for that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So that's what I've got kind of on wrist and in the glass, I went a different direction. So I, around this time of year, you know, uh, September, October, I'm, I'm like get very sort of romantic about European travel, especially since we haven't done it. You know, we have, or at least I haven't been able to do it in the past several years. I love a good German beer. This is, um, actually a local beer. Greg, are you familiar with bottle logic? You know, I, I keep seeing it in the, in the cooler and I've heard great things. I don't think I've had it in my glass though. Um, tell us about it. Yeah, well, you can kind of see from the beer can pattern, right? This is the kind of a their take on, you know, the Bavarian flag, right? But instead of being sort of the, the blue and uh, sky blue, dark blue, kind of white colors, you know, this diamond pattern, it's kind of a sickly green, dark <laughs> green. And 
this is a, basically their take like on a fest beer, Merzen Lager, but it's called Orktoberfest. And you can't really see it through the camera, but they're these little uh, little kind of motifs of like, if you remember your Tolkien, like the Urukai, you know, these little orc faces. <laughs> I don't know what the significance of it is. Jason, <laughs> um, Bottle Logic is a, a really good local kind of Southern California craft brew, but they're very avant-garde. They do a lot of interesting stuff. And this is probably the most grounded beer that they have. So yeah, I'm I'm still all about this at this time of year. Good red color, tastes great. Little bit, a little bit uh more yeasty than a typical Mertzen, but I love it. It's refreshing. So that's mm. that's me. How about you, Greg? Well, I love also the uh the huge Oktoberfest uh mug that you've got too. It really fits in for the whole motif. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Right? Don't tell Wein Stefaner. That's it's a Wein Stefaner mug, but American beer. I'll uh, I'll take it home. I I just picked up uh well picked up uh a watch that hadn't been with me for a little while and um really enjoying having it back on the wrist. It was with uh with the watch the watchmaker getting some service. It's a little Gruen precision. Um let me show you if you guys can see this well in the in the lighting. I don't know how well it'll mm, come that's across. Beautiful. That's wow. that's better. And uh it hadn't been running too well. It was sitting in the drawer for a little while and and decided to finally get it in in good working order and it's just fun um probably about 34 millimeters maybe 35 34 35 i don't know if you call it an engine turn bezel but it's certainly got that characteristic really cool date aperture it's almost like trapezoidal and uh big 12 up top just really really cool little watch fun to throw on and looks really uh looks kind of um period correct i guess in some ways with just this ostrich strap on there and it just feels like a very um, fun watch to wear and a little bit of a throwback, of course. I might have to hit you up for the recommendation on that ostrich strap. I've, I've, I've often seen ostrich straps on watches and they have such a great color and that the bit of texture that they get. Um, yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to, you, you can tell me here or, or, or shoot me a mail afterwards, but I'd love to see. I'll shoot you, I'll shoot you a note, Jason. I, I can't remember the top of my head. Um, but they were a leather, a, a leather worker out of Florida huh. and it was very reasonable too. Cause you know, once you start to get into some of those exotic leathers, you know, it, it can start to climb pretty, pretty yeah. quickly. And this was very reasonable and it's very supple. Uh, I think it's a, a nice strap. So we'll pull it together. I'll send it to you and then we'll, we'll include it in the show notes as well. Well, I'll, I have to say, um, Gruen has a Bond connection. I don't know if you know that that uh, the very first Bond watch uh, Sean Connery wore um, in Doctor No was a Gruen Precision. Um, no way! So the, the scene the table, where you first, right? yeah, when you first see him appear at the at the casino table, where he actually first utters the Bond James Bond thing, he's wearing a a Gruen Precision. It's not the one you've got, but you know, hey, we we all sort of wittingly and unwittingly ended up with with bond brands you, you can tell obviously right off the top here i'm a big james bond fan but uh yeah that's uh that's that's a fun fun theme to kick off with that's incredible i, I can't yeah. believe we didn't plan that and it all came together so well <laughs> i think this is this portends very well for the rest of our our conversation yeah in the um in the glass i have i, I posted this yesterday um it was this month's um, offering from uh, Megay Melate, which is a really cool brand that we talk about often here this is a uh, a mezcal uh, Tobasiche and Barrel um, Ensemble. It's checking in at sixty-one point three percent. So it's uh, it's uh, it's got some uh, some muscle behind it, and uh, it is in the tradition of ha- where they distill in Ihutla, Oaxaca. This is not overproofed or um, you know made it differently. It's, this is just how they distill it, how they make it, how they enjoy it, and um, really nice uh, notes. It's like you said, it's one that um, you know. 
makes it lets you know what's in the glass. It's certainly not a, a wallflower, but it's a very tasty and um, and uh, it's this month's offering from May Latte. So very nice. enjoyable. Hey, hey Greg, I'm I'm curious. I, I, Matt, I think you live in the in the Los Angeles area, right? And and Greg, where where do you live? Are you also in California? Yeah, actually, just down the the two ten freeway from Matt, we're both uh, pretty close uh, to each other. I'm in Pasadena, hmm. um, so just okay. uh, a few miles away from the Rose Bowl. Oh, nice, cool. Yeah, yeah. So if you're ever in town, we can, uh, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll meet at Feldmar, which is you know kind of our oh, right. for me and Greg anyway. It's a it's a pretty well known uh, yeah. AD. This is that's yeah. where um, Nick and Giles kind of terminated their you know, their, uh, road trip. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. so it's, that was the, the, like the last stop was there. I remember so. years ago I was on a press trip. Um, it was a kind of a strange one. Um, cause it wasn't really around any event or anything fancy, but it was, it was the opening of maybe a, a new paddock boutique on Rodeo drive. No, was it Rodeo drive? I can't remember. Anyway, it was in Los Angeles and it was I thought Feldmar was running it or helping out with it or owned it or I, I can't remember what the story was, but it was. It was, was, it, uh, was it Patek or was it um, Frank Mueller? No, it was Patek. Mm. I've never done okay. anything with Frank Mueller. Yeah. So maybe gotcha. it wasn't Feldmar, but I, I, for some reason that name stuck in my head, but yeah, it was fun. Hey. The few times I've been to Los Angeles, I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Hey, can I get your guys' take on something? I came across, um, sorry to jump right into some other things too, but your your comment, Matt, and and also Jason, uh, I've seen a few folks harken back to Frank Mueller as sort of an interesting, um, you know, neo-vintage, uh, uh, new appreciation for the brand, you know, where it's sort of, I think, obviously it was a very hot commodity for some time. And I see folks sort of coming back to it now. What do you guys think about that? Does that brand aesthetic speak to you? Do you do you do you appreciate the watch chops? Is it something that you could see making a comeback? Personally, I am Frank Mueller ignorant. I I don't know a single one of their watch uh, references. I, I it, it it just isn't in my wheelhouse. I mean, you I think you you know if you know anything about me, I it's 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 not not a watch that I uh, that I've ever worn or, or taken interest in. Um, I I know that they've got great history and and we're kind of a big name and sort of at the forefront of, of a movement that we continue to see grow. Um, but other than that, I, I don't know. I, I, what are you seeing out there? Is, is there um, an uptick in kind of interest as they're in, you know, other brands like Richard Meal or, um, you know, some of the other high ends, Hublot and things like that? You know, it's interesting. I, I know um, a number of folks have sort of come around on Hublot, you know, where I think it, as many times do, right? Some of these brands have these kind of ebbs and flows. I, and you've, you've probably seen this for a long time over the course of your career. And it seems like people have sort of come around on Hublot and at least appreciating what they're doing from a technical perspective, even if you don't love maybe the brand yeah. ethos or maybe the clientele. Um, I don't know. I've seen a few posts recently on the Frank Muller where maybe they've become underappreciated because their design aesthetic is maybe representative of, you know, a few years back, but people still appreciating the watchmaking aspect of it and maybe uh, seeing a little bit of a value buy there. Hmm. Hmm. What's the price point of a Frank Mueller? I, I guess I don't know. Are they in the same stratus as a, a, a Richard Mille? I'm guessing not. Richard Mille's at the very top, I guess. That's a great question. I mean, I wonder uh, if yeah, they're... Yeah, I really don't you know, know either. Like blow territory, you know, 30,000 AP kind I, of territory? I think so. I yeah. think so. And I know yeah. there's some high horology. You know, I'm the, I know they're doing turbions and I know they're doing, you know, some other, you know, very complicated um, things. And so I have to imagine, yeah, pushing, pushing that yeah. range for yeah. sure. yeah. 
Yeah, Greg, I'm in the same boat as Jason. I mean, I've seen them around. I have a customer who has one, um, but I, I know really very little about him. And just the aesthetic is it's just far enough out of mm-hmm. sort of the comfort zone that I'd ever wear that it just, you know, it's not like it's a turnoff or that I know anything bad about them. It's just, I've never been motivated to really go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I, I think no, it's I, interesting, you know, the, we talked about where you guys are from or where you live. And I, I think that informs so much of what you know about watches and the watches you see. And and I remember, you know, when I was just getting into watches, um, learning about them, you know, reading everything I could and all the forums were saying, oh, you know, Submariners are boring because every, every middle manager on the street in Manhattan has a Rolex Submariner on. And it's like, well, I, I live in Minneapolis. Like I don't see them. You just don't see them. Um, you know, maybe in a law firm downtown or something like that, but it's just not a watch that is regularly seen. And you guys, you know, being uh, in Southern California, you must just see, I mean, the same goes for cars. I mean, you, you must just see Ferraris and Lamborghinis up and down the road and, and lots of exotic watches on wrists. And for me, my exposure has always been on, on press trips or going to, you know, some of the, the big trade shows. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's definitely true. My up until fairly recently, I was working in the neighborhood of Feldmar, which is kind of right on the border of Beverly Hills and, and an area called Pico Robertson, which is, you know, fairly well to do. And yeah, I would see Audemars Piguet on probably every third wrist. Wow. And um, it was extremely uh, fashionable, you know, in that hmm. part of town. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one of those where, you know, in, in that neighborhood, you know, maybe they, they feel the same way as, you know, people feel about the sub, you know, it's just something you see all the time. I, I would certainly not turn my nose up to own one, but you know, (laughs) just having seen them all the time, I'm like, eh, yeah. Um, Yeah. But uh, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, depending on where I go, I like to, you know, of course, if you're, you know, we're on a group of people, we're always watch spotting, but depending on where I am too, I like to do car spotting just, you know, to see what's around. And I was at the airport at LAX the other day. And I, I don't know why I had this thought, but it's so funny now that Jason said it about exotic, you know, cars. I thought, oh, you know, you never really see that anything interesting at the airport, right? Because it's, you know, if you have, maybe if you're at a certain level of wealth, you probably don't, you probably have the car come pick you up or, or whatever. <laughs> and and I, I kid you guys not, the minute I said that, an Aventador kind of, oh, wow. you know, slid in in front of me. And I thought to myself, <laughs> wow, why would you, why would you send that car there? I guess, but yeah. maybe it's a fun thing to do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like it would be a nerve-wracking car to drive to the airport. I think, you know, bumper-to-bumper traffic, kind of bad visibility, not much luggage space, you know. I'm just going to leave it for four days at Wally Park. It'll be fine. You know, long, <laughs> long-term parking here at yeah. big airports. Boy. <laughs> well, hey, I'm going to kind of jump in with a, a pre-prepared question. Sorry, Greg. Um, but I this is something that's been on my mind. So, Jason, I read your Substack, and we'll plug that later, but one of the things that I think between Substack and maybe even, you know, in, in sort of more your widely consumed writing, you know, for Hodinkee when you were doing that more regularly, or maybe it was the podcast, but the bottom line is I remember it coming over my transom a few times that, you know, over the past few years, you sort of gravitated toward being, and I'm making the inverted commas here, but being a civilian again and getting away from like the day-to-day watch grind. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how is that going? I mean, are you still kind of considering yourself a civilian or are you, you know, finding that enthusiasm? Maybe that's that's the wrong way to put it, you know, because that implies that being a civilian, you don't have enthusiasm or passion anymore. But um, when it's not part of the day to day, are you, 
finding enjoyment in it again. I am. I, you know, I, I think becoming a civilian, as I've termed it, um, and I have to give credit where credit's due. I first heard that term from Ben Clymer when he was talking about when he was getting into kind of more car collecting. This was many years ago. He, he told me that he was kind of enjoying being a civilian about something that he didn't know that much about. And I think, you know, it's that whole notion of you're not doing something professionally related to this new hobby. And so you, you, you get to learn new things and, and kind of be that novice enthusiast again. And I think stepping away from kind of the, the weekly grind, you know, for a long time, I was a staff writer at gear patrol and my beat was, you know, we did, I can't remember what we called it, but you know, it was like a weekly deep dive on a watch. And then we had a, a number of series on the new watches, you know, that were coming out every week and, and then the Hodinkee work and I was writing for revolution and it was just, you know, watches just became this weird abstract concept that was just, it was just kind of washing over me and to step away from that and just do a weekly Substack, which isn't necessarily about watches all the time. Um, and then TGN, which dips into watches, you know, fairly heavily and regularly, we, but it's just a different take for, for me now. And, and I think evidence of, of kind of my newfound enthusiasm for watches was the fact that I just bought this, uh, Seamaster, you know, I, I actually, you know, this was in the throes of my post-surgical, you know, narcotic haze. I remember texting this guy that I know who, um, whose family runs this, uh, local Omega retailer. And I said, you know, I'm really, really itching for that white dialed Seamaster. Do you have one in? And he said, yeah, yeah, you can come over and take a look. And so days went by and I was coming out of the, the pain and, you know, I can't drive today. I'll have to come tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And finally I made it over there. And, you know, that experience kind of came back to me that, that excitement of, you know, trying the watch on the case and then sitting down at a desk with him and plunking down my credit card. And like he wrote on the warranty card and I, you know, you can smell the, I always remember the the manuals that come with new watches have a certain smell to them. I don't know if it's the glue they use in, or the ink or something that they use to print these things in Europe, but um, those little things like came back to me and I thought, this is what I remember really being excited about, you know, rather than getting press samples and, you know, this FedEx shuffle of watches in, watches out, take pictures, take video, write an article about it and move it on. I bought this watch purely for my own joy and satisfaction. And it was, it was, that's kind of the trend. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying kind of scrolling through Instagram feeds and looking at, at what people have on their wrist or, um, you know, kind of occasionally dipping into a forum, which I haven't done in years and, and kind of just, you know, reading forum posts. So yeah, I think getting away from it was, was really a healthy thing to do. Um, I was never, I mean, not to ramble here, but you know, I, I was never completely comfortable being termed kind of a watch collector or a watch guy. I, I, I don't know if it was my upbringing or whatever, but it just always felt a little bit ostentatious and frivolous. And so I always kind of resisted that. Um, but I think now I'm getting more comfortable in that. I'm getting more comfortable with, you know, today I feel like wearing my Bremont or today I feel like wearing the CWC or whatever, and I can take and choose and wear different things depending on my mood. And, and that's just fun. You know, it's become fun again. It was really interesting and fun to hear your, your sort of journey, you know, to that Seamaster and how you were, you know, how you had started to identify that it might've been the one and, you know, you were getting close and feeling that itch and then to see it, you know, it was fun. We, I almost, we, I felt like a fly on the wall hearing, you know, your path to acquiring that particular watch. And I thought that was a really fun thing to, to kind of share with you, even if it was over the pod. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
I've been I'd been circling that watch for a while, and I fully blame it on on Instagram. Actually, that one I do. <laughs> you know, I, I you know occasionally I'll kind of put down the phone for a while and kind of walk away from Instagram, get a little bored with it. But every time I'd see a picture of that watch, um, it just captivated me. Works on all sorts of different straps. Um, it's it's just different enough, and and I couldn't get it out of my head. But then also there was the the Bremont S302, which you know James and I talked about on TGN. Another watch that captivated me. You know the photos that looked great. I love the brand. And then a third one was that LHD Pelagos with the crown on the left side, slightly tinted loom, a little bit of red writing. And you know between the three of those watches, um, I. It was a toss-up, and I, I kind of settled on the Omega because I haven't had a new Omega. I haven't had an Omega in a long time. I have a, an old Speedmaster, but I don't. That doesn't really count. It's kind of, you know, it has no loom. It's no water resistance. The timekeeping is pretty poor. And I, I just, I like the Seamaster family. I just kind of wanted a Seamaster on my wrist, so that's that's what I went for. I saw the uh, I saw the first picture because, like Greg, I mean, I've been attuned to the fact that. You know, really since 2018, you've had a number of good things to say. I mean, this watch launched in 2018. I think you were one of the first people to write about it. You had a good, um, a, you know, a good uh, installment in Hodinkee on it, you know, swimming it. And it seemed like the impression was good. I I remember like, oh, I, that's I'm going to get that watch. And, uh, you know, that first picture that you posted just a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago, just, I, you know, I think it was kind of like how you styled it, but. Yeah. And just the, yeah, the answer is yes. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. I was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think half of watchdom was cheering for you. Cause we, you know, everybody, yeah. everybody knew that, you know, that was, uh, uh that's a, a significant pelt to nail to the, the wall there, you know, and well, good for you. Know, you. Going back to that, that 2018 review, I had, um, and this goes back to the idea of becoming a civilian again, you know, every time, Kishani, my wife and I would, would plan a dive trip of any sort. I would always scramble to get a quiver of watches, loaner watches to take along to review and take photos of and dive with. And that was a trip where we took three watches along and, and that becomes a, a hectic week because you don't really relax much. You're always wanting to get the right photo and swap watches around and get topside and underwater photos, etc. But I remember I had that watch and I had an Oris it was one of the big ones, a pro diver, something GMT. And I can't remember what the third watch was, but you know, I'd dive with the other two and immediately I'd come back out of the water. I'd rinse off, take a shower and I'd immediately put the Omega on because it was so comfortable. And that rubber strap is just superb. And, um, I was surprised because that, you know, I always liked planet oceans and I liked the Seamaster 300 master coaxial. But the the Seamaster Pro, the kind of the Bond watch going back to the 90s, you know, there were just so many things that on paper just seemed so wrong to me. You know, it was like illegible, slippery bezel, the stupid helium valve, you know, all this kind of stuff, the shiny bracelet. But, you know, here I am. So, you know, eating crow, I don't know whatever you want to say. It's, uh, I love it. So I would say adjustable bracelet, the, the cool <laughs> maxi dial. Yeah. I think I... um. I, you know, this is just to get like to kind of wax poetic about this particular watch, but I never liked the, or I should say, I really liked and respected the original Bond watch, but the handset always bugged me. I think you and James both prefer, and I do too, the 2254, you know, mil, 
adjacent, you know, sword hands. And I would love if they brought back a watch like that. Yeah. But, um, I think that this, the, the newer version of the watch, it's such a subtle change, but the hour hand, instead of being like, for lack of a better way to put it, looking like a, just a rectilinear flange, Mm -hmm. it's now, it's now a little bit bigger. And instead of uh, you, the audience can't see this, but instead of being parallel lines, the edges, you've got a little bit of this to it. Yeah. And it, it suddenly changes the, the aesthetic of the whole thing. And now I'm like, okay, that's acceptable. And yeah, yeah. Now I, I like it. And you're right. It's, it's, this is flatter than the PO. I love the planet oceans. I made the mistake, Jason, of going into an AD and trying one of these on in um, steel and Sedna gold. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Greg was with me. And I mean, what, why? I had to, I had to pull him out of there. <laughs> why did I do that? Yeah. Um, so that's, that is absolutely like looming large in my imagination right now. But then again, so is the Vermont S the three Oh two. That's probably going to be my entree back into that brand. I know you and I share an affection for that brand. Yeah, definitely. And and screw the haters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I was wearing my MB two earlier today. I mean, I, I think I've got the white dial MB two and I think wearing the Seamaster white dial kind of, the uh, it's kind of put me in a white dial frame of mind and and the mb2 is such a, a great watch but yeah bremont in general I don't, I don't think there's a watch they do that really misses the mark yeah classic so greg what uh, you you're the guy who was wearing the gruen today you know matt and i have have new fancy dive watches on and and uh and you had the vintage gruen on are you are you a dive watch guy as well i i don't know you as well as i know matt are you a sports watch no guy too? i i'm not as much i mean i have um I have a few sports watches, but no dive watches. And, and not long ago, actually, Jason, uh, well, excuse me, Matt had uh, began to incept me. Um, he left on, uh, he came over and he left with me not only a copy of uh, Depth Charge, but also uh, two dive watches, not just one, two. Wow. And it occurred to me and I said, Matt, are you, are you trying to accomplish something here? And he said, absolutely. <laughs> he, was not, he was not trying to veil it by any stretch of the imagination. He said, I want you to be reading about you know, diving and I want you to be wearing some dive watches and then I think it worked. So it, now, now my, <laughs> my, I have to do the shuffle here and figure out what, what comes in and what goes out. But, um, you know, I, I, I tend to have a little bit of, um, an eclectic, um, but tight collection. Um, again, like you said, I don't love calling it a collection. I don't feel like a collector, but mm-hmm. you know, obviously I have a few things in the box. Um, a lot of sports watches and a few, some few vintage, um, but mostly along like the sort of dress slash sports mode you know i actually had taken off this uh this bowl of a um series d oceanographer um, oh wow yeah after i picked up this gruen today because i wanted to get this on the wrist and sort of yeah test it but um yeah just a mix of sort of fun and funky old and new sports and dressy i suppose yeah a couple frank mullers a couple frank mullers <laughs> for all those you know looking out there for value of you know high horology oh wait wait <laughs> So one of the topics that Jason and I, or Jason and I, that Greg and I talked about, Jason, that we would maybe bring up with you if there's a way to broach it. Now I'm just going to shoehorn it right in. But I've also <laughs> tried to, you know, um, sell him on the idea of Grand Seiko. Oh, and, yeah. And there's a particular watch I think that he likes. And I'm wondering, I don't know, maybe you could help him out with it. Yeah. Maybe. Which one? <laughs> well, the 221 is, uh, has become uh, certainly something I can't stop thinking about, much like you have, be- you know, like you were with the, uh, the Seamaster. Oh, yeah. With, no, with, refresh my memory. I'm not a, a Grand Seiko reference. Uh, That's the, uh, that cream dial mm. with the, uh, the blue GMT hand. Oh, 
I have that watch. Okay. <laughs> it used to be called something different. I think it was called the SBGM 021 or something. Um, yeah, I bought it at, in Tokyo at the Grand Seiko Boutique and and I almost never wear it. Um, but uh, I Gashani really likes it. We've both worn it. It works well on a number of straps. You can put it on like a kind of more of a rustic looking leather strap um, or you could dress it up on something slimmer and shinier. But uh it's it's a gorgeous watch, and despite the fact that I never wear it, I think because of the history and the experience of buying it at the boutique there, which was a very special experience for me, um, and the fact that Gashani and I both like to wear it, I think I, it probably won't leave anytime soon. I think it's it's a watch that you know if I have to pull out a dress watch. <laughs> <laughs> Matt tried to broker this. I didn't realize oh. you know what what the the, the the route we were traveling. Let me ask you guys a question too. Then you know because. And Matt's right. I think there was a, I had an appreciation for Grand Seiko a little bit from afar, had handled them for, you know, sh- you know, 10 minutes, you know, at a, at a, get- a gathering or with a friend, but never really had one on the wrist. And, and Matt gave me his seasons to, to, we swapped watches, um, his seasons, uh, Shun, Shunbun, um, a little while ago. And I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it afterwards. And I've gotten this thought in my head now that Grand Seiko appears to be sort of, the level of finishing that you're getting at the price point seems like the most accessible way to get sort of that level of finishing that you might in your mind think would be reserved for independent watchmaking or very high-end watchmaking. And I'm wondering if you guys, you know, have a thought or, or comment to that. I totally agree. I, I think I think that's what I love about it. I think it's for someone like me who is 99% sports watch focused and closed case backs and you know blunt instruments. I think like when I want that experience, it was the way to get it. You know, I mean, I, um, you know, I'd love to have a paddock that, you know, you pull out and admire and polish and wind up and listen to and wear for an hour, you know, (laughs) but, but like the Grand Seiko kind of, kind of does that. I'm not saying it's a one-to-one with a, with a paddock, but, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, I think you'll, you'll never get that level of finishing at that, at that price point. Matt, do you have uh, you have a Grand Seiko or two, don't you? I do. I have I have two, but one is on its way out the door. It's actually it's out the door. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, but I I love that watch. I bought this watch though, sight unseen, Jason. It's the and again the nomenclature has changed a couple of times, but I think it was the SBGM zero five three. So it's it's a, it was a very basic. It was one of the ones that was done like three on three, where James's pick was the Aquaterra. Okay. And I think um I think John's pick was this watch, but the black dial. And I got a okay. silver dial mm-hmm. and I I got this, it's basically you know three hand time and date, 37 okay. millimeter. It's a Japanese date just Jason, mm-hmm. which is why mm-hmm. I bought it. Yeah. And um you know mechanical three day movement, gorgeous watch. But the, the level of finishing is so good. It's almost good to a fault. I work outside a lot and um, or I'm out and about all the time. And in Southern California, it's sunny. Yeah. Um, it's just very low contrast. The, the mm. you know, the handset is high polished. The dial and the Rahot in particular is mirror polished. It's just amazing. But it's it's really for somebody who's working a desk job. So I I essentially traded that for the date just that I thought it would be. <laughs> and <laughs> The, the Grand Seiko that I have now and the one that I lent Jason is the SBGA 413. So if you've seen the pink dial, you know, the it's 
hmm. the the cherry blossom pink dial, one of the seasons okay. watches from okay. about two or yeah. three years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, and I I bought that with the intention of just having something different that was kind of still in the same vein of the one that I was moving on. And you know, with the pink dial, I don't have sons; I have daughters, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping to pass that on to one of my daughters someday. Yeah, and the the date just on to the other, and yeah, they're fantastic watches. They're I try to get my headspace into being that civilian the way you are. And mm-hmm. at Grand Seiko is like it's you know uh, like the third installment of The Godfather. They just keep pulling me back, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> so so Greg, and, I've got a question for you. You know, you that that Gruen, you know, since you held it up and I looked at it, I'm like, that's the kind of watch I wish I could wear regularly and i i've tried you know i have a couple of of vintage watches in that kind of same vein i've got an old weiler and i've got you know this and that Mm -hmm. and it's like i never wear them because i i always feel in my head and I'm, i'm slowly inching away from this that every watch i buy or own has to be able to be my one watch it has to be the watch you can jump in the pool and save the drowning kid with if the house is burning, I can run out the door with the cat and my wife and jump in the defender and like race off, you know, and like have that one watch that I'll, and I think if I'm wearing a Gruen precision from, you know, the 1960s, like it's going to fail me, you know, it's going to fog up and I'm not gonna be able to see it after dark. And, and it's on a little dainty leather strap or whatever, but I wish I could be that guy that gets up in the morning, puts on a nice polo shirt, my Gruen, I pick up off the desk, the bedside table and put it on and go do my thing. But the reality is I've spent so much time dressed as you can see in a t-shirt and shorts and, you know, I work from home and whatever. So it's like to put on a nice watch like that, just they don't last long on my wrist. I just reach for something kind of chunky and durable. How do you, do you have any of those qualms or feelings or does that not even enter your mind? I think I actually wouldn't have been able to answer that question pre pandemic because I've always found myself in an office. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I was also working from home, um, like so many people and I can see exactly what you mean because that kind of watch was not getting on my wrist often during that time because there was just more things to be doing around the house. Maybe during lunch I was, you know, instead of eating lunch at my desk or meeting a client or whatever, I was all of a sudden maybe run into the garage to try and work on a quick little project, right? Or yeah. um, the kids were home too. And so I'm change, you know, doing more dishes during the middle. So th- those, those things that you're bringing up, those little qualms all of a sudden became noticeable and, and mindful to me that they wouldn't have been before when I was in an office setting, you know, more often than I was not probably. So I could actually appreciate exactly what you're saying there. And I think, um, you know, given that I've, if I was in a different setting on a daily basis, yeah. might, I might feel about it differently too. Well, I, I think um, since I started, I, I've developed a bit of a, a love affair with Garmin watches and uh, it's way off topic here, but you know, as, as kind of an activity based watch that I wear, you know, cycling, hiking, um, diving, etc., And then I put it on for the activity and take it off when I'm done. And I love the, all the information that I can put in my phone. I have no interest in wearing it full time or wearing an Apple watch. I don't need all of the notifications, et cetera. But what that has taught me is a different way to look at my other watches because rather than that MB2 or a dive watch that has to be the be all and end all like rugged watch, like I'm, I'm learning that when I go out to do something, I'm taking those watches off anyway and setting it on the table or on my desk, putting on the Garmin to go bash around and go for a bike ride or whatever. 
and then come back and put on my quote unquote nicer mechanical watch. And so it's kind of helped me to come around to this idea that I can wear a kind of a nice Grand Seiko on a leather strap while I'm sitting at my desk, you know, doing a podcast or writing an article. And then when I go to do something else, I can just take it off, set it on my desk and I can be okay with that rather than this like 24 seven, this has to be the one watch for everything, you know? That's a great point. And actually, I think um, I had gotten an, uh, the, one of the Oris Big Crown pointer dates about a, about a year ago and change. And of course, Matt helped um, facilitate that and encouraged me, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for. But uh, I, I think it's got a pretty low water resistance rating on it. Um, and at first, oh, I don't know, is that a problem? And as I started to really think about, you know, the 221 or, you know, the Grand Seiko that you have, and I think it only has, you know, again, you know, very, very minimal water resistance. Mm-hmm. I started to have some of those thoughts in my head too. And I have come also to a very similar uh, resting place that you have where I take off my watches for a lot of stuff now. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree. I don't think it has to be the end all be all um, because uh, I, I'm not going, I'm not literally going from, you know, um, you know, the surf to the boardroom. <laughs> right. <laughs> as, as romantic as that sounds. Yeah, as, right. And, and right. As, as noble as that is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, watch, watch, watch people aren't, aren't, aren't romantic at all. Right, guys? <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> I, there's, I think, you know, Jason, I'm sorry, I'm going to fangirl on you here for a minute, but I mean, it's the same sort of thing with Cole. You know, there's a, a certain like writing style. I think that a lot of people, and maybe it's our generation, you know, I think, um, Greg, I think technically you're a Gen Xer. Uh, maybe. I think I'm a, the, the last bandwidth of a millennial. Right. Okay. All right. You're the elder millennial, but I mean, there's <laughs> just, you know, so, I mean, in my mind, I, I, I can remember the seventies, mm-hmm. you know, and we, you know, we, I, Jason and I have like exchanged, you know, the, the pictures of the, the heat and boond, you know, and that kind of thing. I remember when people wore those that, and it's not ironic or kitschy <laughs> or an attempt to bring it, it'd be a comeback. That was like, you know, what guys wore and there's um, you know, I've, I've, I worked for airlines for a long time in the nineties and I, you know, I've got that aviation background and, and piloting and stuff like that. I love this stuff about watches. And to me, mm-hmm. it's that adjacency of the rest of the good stuff in life is to me, what is more important than, you know, the mechanics of watches. I love all that stuff too. And, you know, the collectability and, and God forbid I ever say the investment value of watches, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's that, that romantic specialness and yeah, I don't know. Jason gets it. I think James gets it. Cole gets it. And there's, you know, other people do too. So that's the, to me, that's the value. That's why I, you know, I like to consume Jason's Substack. And anytime I see you write anything, I'm pretty much okay. I'm on it. Well, I, I think I've, over the years, I've backed away from this one watch for everything thing. Cause I'll never be that guy. I mean, I have a collection. I'm, I'm finally coming around to being able to admit that I, I do change <laughs> Jason watches. And almost I have daily. a collection. Exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where I'm at now. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've changed completely to the point where, you know, I, I get a lot of direct messages and a lot of people asking me like, which watch is better, this or that, you know, if you're, is this, is the Doxa 300 better than the Certina DS or, or whatever it is. And I'm like, it's whatever you like to see on your wrist. These watches are all built to a very high standard. They're not really going to fail you. And, and you have to be realistic. Like, what are you truly using this watch for? Like, even when I think about 
I'm going to use your Gruen as an example again. Like how often are you truly near a body of water or, or in a swimming pool or, you know, to the point where like you need that high water resistance, like all the time. And I think once you come to terms with the fact that, okay, I really don't like, then you realize I, I don't need to be this make believe guy who's has to run around wearing the tactical, you know, special ops watch all the time, you know, my Royal Navy dive watch, you know, like I, I don't, I don't have to have that on full time. Like it's, I'm even though I'm an avid diver, I'm probably diving, you know, 0.1% of my entire year is spent underwater. So it's, you know, setting those expectations and just realizing what watches are and what they aren't, I think is, is, is something I've come to terms with over the past eh, two years, I would say. And it's is really that a helped. journey. Yeah. yeah. Is that a journey? Do you think, uh, you know, I'm thinking uh, similarly and, you know, when, when, especially when you're consuming a lot of watch content and, and part of the beauty, I think of, you know, some of these things, you know, week on the wrist or um, really in-depth reviews and putting the watch through the ringer. I think then as the, as the reader, as the listener, you're thinking to myself, wow, yeah, that that's going to be me too. And, and so, you know, the cycle, the psychology, I suppose, of attaching yourself to, you know, that particular watch as you've seen it, you know, in different settings is interesting. And then, but then to be able to return back and say to yourself, okay, how am I going to use it? Right. And I think, you know, I used to chuckle about the, every dive watch review always had something in it about how easy it was to turn the bezel with gloves on. Or with wet hands, you know? And I was like, how often are you doing this? Are you actually doing this? But so on the one hand, I was always kind of being almost a reverse snob and saying, who cares, you know? And the, but on the other hand, I think to myself, and I think I wrote this in that Omega review a couple of years ago, was if, if a brand is going to release a watch and they call it a dive watch, like somebody has to test it to that standard, right? Somebody has to use it for diving, even if nobody else is going to, at least one person should go out and use it for that and say, yeah, it, it, it works well for diving. You know, it, it didn't leak and I can grip the bezel and I could read it underwater. I mean, that's really the, the three things that, that have to work on it. Um, but in reality, are you using the bezel to time your, your ramen or are you, um, you know, washing the dishes and you just need it to be splash proof or whatever. So I, I'm, I'm softening a bit in that respect. I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm being more tolerant of people that just kind of want to wear watches for just anything, but I'm also, trying to like instill in people like you don't need you don't need these things to be you know ask the right questions you know about about your dive watch or or whatever it is and i'm i'm a total uh pilot's watch uh, kind of i don't know ignoramus is the wrong word but you know like like i am to pilot's watches what a lot of people are to dive watches and people that don't dive they ask kind of naive questions about dive watches now you know i'm not a pilot i i kind of love the idea of aviation and space travel and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, you'd have to talk to like a real pilot about what's important on a, on a pilot's watch these days, you know? It's refreshing. And I think, you know, just having listened to TGN over the last, well, I don't know exactly when I'm not going to specify a time range, but the transparency to which you both say, Hey, I'm open and willing to revisit my own thoughts on things. I'm open and transparent to hear a different point of view is great because I think it encourages folks to do the same and not to just sort of find themselves in the same cycle of, okay, well, these things are important, whether or not they may or may not be important to that, that person. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I, or you might change your, your, your idea on some things over time. Well, and I think that's kind of what's been fun about, uh, 
TGN and podcasting in general is it's, it's it, simply by dint of the fact that, you know, we're, you're listening to a voice talking and two people talking in conversation, sometimes three people like we are today, you know, it, it gives this human element to it. And we are all just people growing and learning and sharing. And when I look at some of my old articles that I wrote, I, I cringe and think, you know, wow, I can't believe I thought that, you know, eight years ago or whatever, but it's like that, that's what it's all about, you know, and I'm, I'm happy if somebody goes back and reads that first dive review that I wrote and I was clueless kind of, you know, novice or something like that and said the wrong thing. I mean, I think it shows growth and a lot of people can relate to those journeys. Yeah. Well, I mean, think even just, um, this is sort of tangential, but just, you know, that you became a diver because of a watch. Yeah. Not, not the other way around. You didn't get interested in watches because I mean, I, I think I became interested in watches because I was, uh, you know, in an activity mm. and th- that was something that was like, okay. And then, you know, this is and specifically like, you know, working airline stuff. And then eventually I, I did get rated. I have not, you know, full disclosure, I have not been underwater properly in over 20 years, but I am a rated diver. Yeah. And, um, that was where I've started getting into dive watches was through that activity. I think, you know, you've kind of, at least as far as diving goes, took it the other way. And I think that's super cool. How many people do you think, you know, it's probably not hundreds, but I bet there are a few people who learn to dive because of your interest in diving and watches. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I always, I bet the number is not zero. No, I always take pleasure. And I, you know, we see emails regularly at the, at the TGN inbox from people saying, you know, you guys inspired me to, to take up diving or, um, and I think a lot of that comes from, again, from, you know, I, I can't discount as much as I try to kind of downplay the importance of watches and this kind of crazy hobby. Um, if they can inspire you to go out and do cool stuff, that that's enough, enough for me. And I think a lot of people have bought a Seiko SKX and, and then started listening to TGN and we talk enthusiastically about diving with a watch and they're like, I want to see how this watch looks underwater, you know? then they go to learn how to dive. And, and even if they do it once or 10 times and then quit, who cares? You know, they've had that experience and, you know, if it leads to even a more noble end, such as, uh, you know, gee, you know, when I was diving, I saw some plastic cups in the, on the reef or the reef was all bleaching and I need to, you know, um, you know, to pay more attention to where my, my source, my seafood or the plastic I use or whatever. I mean, great. You know, and all of that came from a watch, you know, if I, if you trace that back, I mean, that's, that's kind of neat. Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of things, ideas, um, activities that I've been exposed to because of my interest in the hobby, either, you know, people in the hobby or, you know, the reading that I've done or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the I have to be honest, the the watch community is, you know, we're in it. So it sounds silly to say, I think we all feel relatively similarly, but it's incredible. It's so well. Jason sees it from many angles, I guess, but the over the people we tend to surround ourselves with are overwhelmingly positive, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. supportive, overwhelmingly um, trusting, and, and overwhelmingly willing to lend their expertise um, and advice. Or and it's just it's really special, you know. I think about the example that Jason just gave, where you know this watch or this item, you know got somebody in the water and then potentially could have, you know, impacted their thoughts on, you know, um, ocean health. Um, that's so cool. And, and, and the watch community is, is really, I think unique in that regard. I agree. And I, I, um, 
you know, I'm not sure the only other kind of community that I'm sort of dipping a toe into in the past few years is kind of my interest in Land Rovers, you know, I'm going to Land Rover and whatever. And I'm not sure that there's the same vibe, but I think with, with watches, what, what's encouraging too, is that it's, it's a very enthusiastic by and large positive, you know, if you ignore the comments on Hodinkee posts, (laughs) by and large positive community, um, especially when you meet people in person, you know, local get togethers and things like that. Um, and it's a kind of a, you know, even here in the Midwest, I'm sure where you guys are a pretty diverse crowd, you know, you get people of different ethnic backgrounds and, and, you know, where they grew up and men and not, maybe not enough women, but you know, who knows, but, but the one complaint I have, or the one thing I would love is a bit more egalitarian when it comes to income level. I think it's by and large, it's such a, you know, just by the nature of the pricing of watches, it, it, it kind of always puts it at that certain socioeconomic level. And I'd love to see, because I'm sure you guys have experienced when you encounter a relative or a friend at a kid's birthday party or at the office or whatever it is, and someone sees your watch and they know about your enthusiasm for it. And they're like, "Eh, what did that one cost? Or, you know, there's this immediate barrier that's set up, like you're wearing this expensive watch. You're kind of a uh, well, and maybe this is totally the Midwestern background is, is this idea of, you know, ostentatious displays of wealth. Um, I would love to see that barrier kind of knocked down a little bit. And I know that guys can show up at red bar with a G shock or a Seiko, but I'd love to just see more people get involved at, at much lower levels. And I think the micro brands have kind of chipped away at that, but I'd, I'd like to see more of that. I think you're very right about that. I think, um, I would agree. It'd be, it, it, and I've, Thinking about my own journey as I was a, maybe the first time I went to a get together, I had those same feelings in my head. Oh my goodness. Well, what, what, what am I going to show up wearing? And is yeah. it going to be enough? And it, it is, it's a very weird anxiety to have about that. And, um, you know, as you start to navigate different areas and meet different people and start to understand, you know, some people collect things that are a very accessible price point and it's super cool and they're super enthusiastic and they really care about it. And, and, um, but at the same time, I think the overall, um, view from the outside would be one that, like you said, you show up and you're, I still get that pinging, ping of anxiety. If you, you know, how, how, like, how much does that set you back? You're like, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that. I just want to talk <laughs> right. about, does it look cool or not? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I always want to like diffuse that. Like when somebody says, I bet that watch cost a fortune. It's like, let's not talk about that. Like it really didn't, but it, let's talk about like, let me take off the back and show it to you. Like you're. Let's go back to the Gruen again. Like that watch I'm guessing was not, didn't cost a fortune, but like, that's a classic, beautiful ex- uh, example of, you know, mechanical craftsmanship and engineering from a different era. And like pricing is irrelevant with that. It's it, they're affordable watches all day long, old Bulovas and Gruens and, you know, Weilers and Seikos and things. And, and that's the, that's where the real magic is, you know? And I think, if there's a step in becoming a civilian even further, it's it's to kind of go down that path and like start trolling eBay late at night looking for old <laughs> Gruens, you know? <laughs> I've, I've been fortunate enough to never really be confronted about that, but I've had a few people that have, you know, over the years, and it, in a couple of cases, they've been people who've sort of been converted, you know, and end up collecting watches. But the um, what I'll, I'll kind of tell people is I'll give them an analogy. It's like, okay, I collect watches and we think of these things as kind of these small objects that are disproportionately expensive relative to our income. But there's a couple things to consider. One, for the most part, and I, I almost hate to bring this up because of the whole Rolex phenomenon, but for the most part, you know, it's money spent, it's on your wrist, 
it's and most of the value is not gone, especially if you yeah. kind of buy smart. Um, number two, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I've been into this hobby for you know twenty odd years and deep into it for maybe fifteen. And so you know that that kind of gives you time to sort of build up to things. But let's say I was into classic cars. You know, somebody we listen to the fighter pilot podcast. I do so. You know. Um, you know, Vincent is into, you know, muscle cars and stuff like that. If I had one <laughs> 1967 Camaro out there, not even anything like particularly rare on the West coast, you know, we have good weather, you know, yeah. we have a lot of rust-free cars. Um, if I had, I could have one of those and nobody would bat an eye and yeah, my true. entire watch collection could easily be sunk into that. And you'd never, that's yeah, so true. You know, think, think twice. Yeah. It's, but there's, you know, just, there's a, a certain perception about watches. And when I kind of put it that way to people, it's like, yeah, okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And, yeah. but all the, I agree with the underlying point, you know, there is, um, there's a little bit of potential baggage and yeah, I mean, we probably, although I think I've been fortunate to be in groups and with Greg, you know, where there's a lot of enthusiasm for stuff like G-Shock and there's people that collect Swatch mm-hmm. and, you know, where it is, um, it's about the enthusiasm and what the watches do for you and appreciating other people's appreciation, not their watches. Yeah. Um, but I think we all probably see that too. Hey, I've got, I'm going to ask you, Jason, I'm going to just pivot us slightly because in our conversation now you've alluded to, you know, cleaning up reefs and ocean, you know, mess. And that makes me think of, right. The new upcycled Oris diver, which we saw recently, right, Greg? Very nice. Um, we've mentioned Bremont a couple times. Um, I talked about Weiss. We've had, um, we actually, uh, we had Cam on the show yeah. a couple of months ago. And the other watch that I'm thinking about is the Zinn, the 103 UTC Diapal. Are you familiar with that one, Jason? Titanium. Uh, describe it to me, the 103. What's the. What so the 103 about? is going to be sort of the, um, it's chronograph. Uh, it is like 41 millimeters, a little bit clunky. Um, it's not a, you know, a perfectly round shape. Um, you know, and it's the, the lugs are kind of rectilinear instead of, you know, swoopy. Um, you'd know it if you saw it. Oh yeah. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, the the UTC dipe, these are the, the, the four things that are in my head right now is, you know, (laughs) that, uh, Vermont S302. Yep. Almost anything from Weiss in a white dial. Yep. The um the Oris. It, the thing that is on my mind right now is that new. If you saw Cole's write up a couple weeks ago, you know, for uh, was it uh, Geneva Watch Days or whatever, but the the Rega Fleet, mm-hmm. the GMT watch. Yeah. So pilot. we got we got to see that Pro Pilot watch. That was that thing's incredible. And the thing that. All three of those brands, and I'll leave this in as I as a uh, as a wild card. But all three of those brands, I like not just because of the watches, but my perception of the people involved, and mm-hmm. you know the the brand, the principles, yep, um, and what what they're doing. And so I wouldn't ask you for an answer now, but I'm going to bug you offline with the question that you everybody hates: like, what watch should I get next? Because I've <laughs> I. I I don't have a Bremont in the collection and I feel like I, I stand for them so much. I better, yeah. I better have one. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good pick. And, um, I, I think those are good brands. I think uh, Weiss is another brand that, uh, you know, I've met uh, Cameron and his wife. Uh, they came to, through Minneapolis uh, a few years ago and I met them and uh, 
we chatted. He's got a very interesting background. I think he worked, used to do uh, work for a company that made underwater camera housings and he's an avid diver, which I didn't know about. And uh, yep. we talked about that a little bit he's got an old Land Rover and, you know, so we have, we have some overlapping interests and whatever. And I, I love his watches. I love the watch that he made that was inspired by the speedometer of his old Land Rover had that really cool green color. Like that I kind of wish I had fantastic watch. picked one of those up. Um, Same. As a bit of an aside on that one, as a, my problem is I, I like gadgets with watches. I either like chronographs or dive watches or at least a GMT. I like something you can manipulate and play with. So field watches and dress watches, I, they tend not to stay on my wrist. But coming back to kind of the main point, I think Weiss, Zinn, Oris, Bremont, you know, these are brands that they're that second tier, in some cases, third tier brands that people just don't think about when you think about like an Omega or Rolex or, you know, some others. And it does come down to the people or just the brand philosophies. And I have had a couple of Zins in the past and I often wondered to myself, like, why don't I still have one? Like they're, they're, they're totally in my wheelhouse, almost more so than any other watch brand. I think Bremont might inch them out a little bit because of my bit of an Anglophile. So I kind of get into that whole aspect, but um, yeah. And, and you're definitely kind of a aviation geek. So I think, I think either Bremont or Zinn is probably the way to go. I, I think, uh, I don't know that Bremont's hard to resist. <laughs> it, yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah. yeah but it, and I think, um, yeah, my, my sort of my wider point with that, the reason I'd even bring that up is just that that's another, I think, phenomenon is that, you know, any, the good brands, I think, have some kind of connection with their, their enthusiasts and the fan base. You're, I don't care how big a collector you are. Rolex does not care about you. They do not know your name. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. they do not meet with you, that sort of thing. I mean, that's almost part of their cachet, right? Is that right? Right. They just keep, you know, kind of plugging forward like a train in the night, you know, that just sort of just keeps moving ahead, you know, making excellent watches and incremental improvements. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, if you, if you call Weiss watches and have a question, you're going to probably talk to Cameron or his wife, you know, and that's, it's just a completely different other end of the spectrum. So I almost don't even know why I asked you that question. I thought you'd get a kick out of it. Well, I think, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because the, the, the Omega that I bought, there is something about big brands and the cachet and the history that I connect with. So on the one hand, if you're looking for personal connection, there are a lot of micro brands that you can seek out. You know, I love Jason at Helios and and I have a Helios uh, that my mother kind of took over and wears full time pretty much. and, And that's great. Um, but you know, there's a lot of micro brands. There's, you know, if you can call Weiss a micro brand, but you know, Helios and Raven and some others. And I admire what those guys are doing, and I love it. But I'm I'm a romantic, and I'm a I'm a history buff, and I like the history behind watches. That's why, okay, Rick Murray revived Aquastar. It's not the same Aquastar as it used to be, but like I can own a Deep Star chronograph. And it's, it looks identical to the ones that, you know, Cousteau and his crew were wearing back in the sixties. And like, it just, it makes me kind of well up, you know, it's like this, there's some, the history to it and the name and the old logo and things like that. And same goes for Omega. I mean, this is a modern Seamaster, but that name Seamaster on a dial and that Omega logo means something to me that it just, it kind of drills into my head. So 
I'm very picky when it comes to kind of those smaller brands that I do choose to connect with. And I think Bremont has managed to kind of straddle that romanticism for me with the small brand connection. Um, but I, I do, you know, I have to admit, I do, I do like Rolex's history of exploration and kind of all that they stand for and, and, and kind of Omega's, you know, history with various things, the Royal Navy and, and, you know, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a balance because I'm not a big micro brand consumer. I don't have a lot of micro brand watches. Same. And I think that's the, um, you've said it without saying it, but certainly alluded to it. It's the, the personal connection with a micro. And I, like you, I probably would say Weiss kind of straddles the, pardon me, fellas. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah. Cameron, when we talked to Cameron, he kind of said similarly, he said, you know, listen, you know, I think there's people that are smaller than us, but, um, you know, cause I think we had asked him for a recommendation of maybe something that was maybe under the radar. And so, yeah, they, they straddle a little bit, but I, I think they have that culture there where they're accessible. And I think that's, you know, something to speak of. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, the, hopefully Rolex the days of, uh, you know, them sending free watches to POWs, um, <laughs> Well, maybe not that specific circumstance will hopefully never come to pass again. But, you know, I, I think they've sort of moved beyond that. But that's the, you know, that's the kind of thing that I always think of when it comes to Rolex. Ro- that and Pan Am, frankly. I mean, yeah. Craig has a GMT master. You were wearing your glass or wearing your glass, drinking your glass. I've had half a pint of beer, guys. <laughs> My Talisker's gone. This Pan Am glass is empty now. So. <laughs> Yeah, if I get a little incoherent here, you'll know why. <laughs> it's not going to be my recommendation, but I'm going to send you a link. There's a Pan Am Museum podcast. Oh wow! And and I've <laughs> just plugged into it, and it's uh, it's interesting. There's a, a lot of interesting stuff. So <laughs> right up right up your street. Yeah. Anyhow. Well, you know, I well, think it, it, it. You know, to maybe tie a ribbon on this kind of part of our chat, I think a lot of us are. You know, listen, we're talking about analog things in a digital world. And so there is a level of sort of connection to them through, you know, a little bit of a romantic lens. And, um, and a lot of our adjacent activities uh, probably have some similar feel to that, too. So I think it, it does make sense what you're saying, Jason. And I think, I think a lot of people could probably relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, I think we could probably put a bow on, as Greg said, this this part of the conversation. Uh, Jason, at this point, this is when we usually start to wrap things up and then just kind of review some of the stuff. And it's very similar to every, you know, other, I think, big podcast, every other big podcast. I think both wow, of our we're listeners a big just laugh. That's yeah. huge news. That's great. Yeah, they're like, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> Benny, big time. Uh, but, you know, we'll kind of, you know, offer some kind of suggestion. And I... I've got one, but I think Greg had an interesting sort of recap. Um, Greg, I'm teeing this up for you. I hope you know where I'm going. Uh, I think I do. And it's sort of a, a, th- a nod to, I think, TGN and, and Jason um, and James, some things that they have been talking about recently. On the last, I think the most recent episode or, or one before, um, Jason, you were talking about, you know, Drive to Survive, the mm. Netflix show. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think just a, the, the previous time we recorded, Matt and I, I had made a reference to it because I had also revisited it recently, just like you did. And, um, but I had found a really cool article in the Atlantic, um, which I, I, I think they're, 
do some really nice um, and interesting writing. And, um, you know, their angle was just about what, how the, how that series has brought new people to that sport. Um, you know, whereas the, you know, the big four, you know, American sports maybe would, would die for that sort of influx of, of of kind of new audience members. And so, but anyway, I, I, after you mentioned it too, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm reinvigorated. I've just read this article. Jason's, you know, digging into it hard now. And so I'm, I think I'm up to season three right now, but, um, a great, a great recommendation as usual. Yeah, that's, uh, it's so good. And I'm, I'm, I had, it was my convalescence, uh, viewing and I have watched, I binged the first two seasons fully and I have yet to start season three. Uh, and you know, I don't think Ashani shares my same interest and we tend to watch most things together. So whether she gets into it too, that would be the real test. But, you know, I never took much interest in formula one, but man, I, I'm, I happened to catch the last five minutes of the Russian Grand Prix just this past weekend and exciting finish. And, and these names that I was familiar with from the show and I knew exactly what was happening. And I was like, yeah, I, I get this. This is a high drama sport. It's, it's really cool. I mean, it has its flaws. It's weird. It's, you know, it's this weird sort of paranoia between, you know, the drivers are going to even be on the same team the next year and the fighting between team members and the expense of it all and all that. But like just from a human level, like it's fascinating. It's so cool. Well, I'm a huge fan of Formula One. And I, that was going to be my question either to really either of you or both of you is, do you think having, you know, kind of come across the the Netflix specials and watch them, do you think it would be, is that enough of an impetus to kind of pull you in and, you know, and watch the sport a little bit more frequently? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it, watching, I'm not sure. I don't watch a lot of live sports. I think it's so time consuming. Like you'd really have to be invested in it. But I think, you know, like I, I do enjoy watching like the, the big Grand Slam tennis finals. I think those are great, especially if, you know, Federer's playing Djokovic or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I could see, you know, if it comes down to the wire with, you know, to the last race of the season between uh, Verstappen and, and Hamilton for the, for the world championship, like I could see myself, you know, getting up at some odd hour. I, I think what the final race might be in Abu Dhabi or something, but like, you know, to, just to, to watch, uh, to watch that race, I think would be pretty cool. Um, I feel like, it, again, I'm not going to go off on this tangent too hard, but I feel like there are a lot of sports that could use a similar kind of, you know, kick in the pants. And I think uh, diving is one of them. I think, you know, cl- rock climbing, climbing has gotten a real boost in the past few years when, it, you know, with movies, uh, you know, Free Solo and the Dawn Wall and all the Everest coverage over the years. And I think, you know, diving has kind of been watered down since the, its heyday in the 60s and 70s to this sort of overly sanitized, you know, kind of vacation sport. And I think, you know, it's a true adventure sport. I mean, it's, it's like nothing else. And I'd love to see just my, my personal soapbox would be, you know, I'd love to see more kind of adventurous dive content around. And I think, you know, whether that's a movie or a series or new kind of magazines. And I think that was part of the, the reason behind even writing the book that I did, you know, I was like to kind of get that out there, you know. That's a great point. And I think, um, you know, your book opened my eyes to something, you know, that I had not paid, you know, very close attention to. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, okay, that's an activity now, you know, or an endeavor um, that I would, you know, like to be closer to. And so that's a pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty cool thing. And, and, and the way, you know, people consume content these days, it does, it, it takes something like that. Cause there's, you know, the, the, the choices are, are endless. And, um, and so it takes really great writing, 
or cinematography or storytelling to, I think, bring people to something that's maybe not on the forefront. Well, and I think it's, it's positive that, uh, you know, Jimmy Chin, uh, is involved with a new movie about the, the Thai soccer team cave rescue. You know, I mean, he did free solo, you know, this movie that won an Oscar and it was just huge. I mean, it suddenly drew this attention to this obscure sport of rock climbing. And I'm not saying, you know, cave diving is, 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 I mean, cave diving is potentially even more obscure than, than big wall climbing. Um, and, possibly more dangerous. I don't know. That, that'd be neck and neck for that, that, uh, category, but, um, I'll be curious to see what he does with that movie. I mean, Chin isn't a diver himself, but, but, you know, has a knack for doing these documentaries and, uh, you know, we'll see what kind of a boost, uh, an interest in diving gets from, from that movie. Yeah. As an aside, I would love to see that. I have, there's a guy I follow and listen to and, um, for this audience, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend him, but it's um, if you're interested, I'll back channel it. But the guy does a, a weekly podcast and it's kind of like a news roundup, but from a, a, a military perspective, but it's extremely hard edge. It's very raunchy, but he's a uh, former pararescueman. Hmm. So he's, um, you know, uh, basically Air Force special warfare, but it's all, you know, um, high angle rescue you know, high altitude operations and, and trauma and stuff like that. But they're, you know, they're all special forces, uh, diver qualified. And it was air force pararescue guys out of Japan. I think that were, um, you know, some of the guys who were offering, you know, advice, technical advice, and were helping on that rescue. I'd, I'd love to see more about how that went. Cause that was one of the most like technically harrowing rescue operations of, I did. I can think of period. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah. um, that'd be incredible. Anyway. Yeah. Enough about that. So I'll, I'll back channel you on that if that ever comes yeah. out and he has involvement in that. Um, Jason, we'd like to, to pull you in. I've got a recommendation. Actually, maybe I'll just jump in on that or Greg, did I cut you off? Is there anything you wanted to recommend for today? Not at all. I just want to co-sign um, the most recent TGN um, cinema club or film club episode you guys did. I've already um, watched two of the of the movies, and, and I think I think you recommended the Lighthouse, Jason. Is that I right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that was like <laughs> it was right on. I had come across it a couple times on the recommendations, and I'm like, yeah, it looks interesting. I love Willem Dafoe, and, yeah. and Pattinson's going to be good, I'm sure. But I just I'm not sure. And then when you said watch it, I'm like, okay, all right, it's already there, and and that was a really fun watch. So um, go listen to that episode they did because there's I mean. You guys give nine, you know, or at least nine movies and then a few other extra, you know, yeah. add-ons. But that was a good recommendation. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, that's a challenging movie, but it's it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, the thing that I have, this is really, really obscure. Um, and, uh, you know, full disclosure, I haven't seen this since I was a child, but I found it. Um, I don't know why I thought of it. Oh, yeah. Actually, I do know why I thought of it. <laughs> I, I was watching a uh, – I'm a huge Magnum PI fan, and I, I totally – I'm all about the affectation. I admit it. You know, the Hawaiian shirts and the oh yeah, everything. You know, I I, I want the the Pepsi GMT master and the whole deal. I I could easily give James Lambden a run for his money. <laughs> there was so when I was a kid, and by definition, Jason, this will be when you were a kid too. Do you remember this? This is Tales of the Gold Monkey. No, nope, never a, heard of it. A short a short lived television series, probably <laughs> circa circa like 82, 83. And I think, um, you know what, I'm not going to even attempt his first name because I'm probably going to mess it up or not remember it. But um, Belisario was one of the 
the big uh, writer producers in the early 80s, mm-hmm. you know, and it was Magnum PI and all yeah. of these things. So I think he had a hand in this, I think. I should huh. probably look at the, the case back, right? But it's uh, Tales of the Gold Monkey would be <laughs> if you could take Indiana Jones, Magnum PI, and Black Sheep Squadron and mash them all up. And it's wow. it's sort of just pre-World War II South Pacific um you know, uh, American roustabout in the South Pacific, like in a, it's either a grum and goose or a wooden widgeon, one of these, you know, old, you know, kind of medium sized seaplanes tooling around, you know, Polynesia to Australia, getting in hijinks in, you know, the, the rise of like Imperial Japan before like out, outright war breaks out. And, you know, some of the subtext, as I remember it, is, you know, there's some Trevor treasure hunting. There's some, you know, intrigue and, and espionage, you know, pre-war. Uh, and I'm interested to check it out again. It might be completely schlocky and maybe <laughs> it's just, you know, not great. But I remember being interested in it as a kid and it, it didn't go very far as a series the way Magnum P.I. did. But um, I got it on Amazon. It's like six discs. I think it's two seasons. <laughs> and I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Well, so much from that era was it was very hit or miss, you know. I mean, good concept, but just poor execution, you know. It was sure as my old basketball coach in high school used to say, you know, good idea, poor execution, you know. But uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, you guys put me on the spot, but I came up with one. If you're looking for recommendations, so we were just talking about uh, dramatic rescues and obscure sports, and and I remember there was a series uh, that was produced by Red Bull a few years ago called The Horn. Um, so this is probably not news to a lot of people, but um, it was about the high altitude rescue service uh, out of Air Zermatt, which is in Zermatt, Switzerland, and, and the rescues that they effect on um, the Matterhorn and kind of that area of the Alps. And, you know, Red Bull has a reputation for kind of being over the top and, you know, kind of going big adrenaline. But this is a legit documentary series following this rather sober sometimes grizzled crew of helicopter pilots and, and mountain rescue guys that are, they're, you know, rescuing everyone from, you know, casual day skiers to mountaineers to people that have fallen in crevasses. And, um, you know, it, it, it's pretty intense and it's pretty cool. And it was, uh, it was a series, um, from, I, I guess it says here 2017. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's definitely worth finding. I, I'm not sure, you know, where it's playing, but I'm sure it's on a number of streaming services. Um, but yeah, it's called the horn and, uh, you know, it's such a beautiful part of the world. I've, I've been to Zermatt a couple of times and actually flew on one of Air Zermatt's uh, helicopters over the Matterhorn. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know anything involving helicopters is just such high adventure and just so cool. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you, if you haven't heard of that by any chance and, and or you've seen it and you haven't have wondered about it. I highly recommend watching the horn. Yeah, I'll second that. I think we, we actually talked about that series a few episodes ago when Oris released and, and, you know, um, also bonus, right. There's a lot of, uh, kind of watch content, oh, yeah. vicarious watch content there because yeah. of, um, Hamilton's involvement with them. They've, right. they've done a number of bears or watches. Yeah. It's a fantastic mini series. I, I completely second that motion. You should, if you're interested in any kind of adventure sports, watches, aircraft, skiing, yeah, whatever, yeah. Uh, watch it. It's fantastic. I remember one of the early episodes, they were 
rescuing someone who I think fell in a crevasse and they had to erect like a tripod winch apparatus to kind of, you know, lower a, a, a rope and, and probably a, one of the rescuers, uh, you know, with a harness down into this crevasse and, and they had to erect this makeshift tripod over the crevasse to provide some, you know, a fulcrum to, to lower this person in. It was just, it was this dramatic episode. And then they pulled him up and he was on a stretcher, you know, broken neck or whatever on the, on the ice, on the slope of this steep mountain, you know, and there's this, this old doctor who has been working for them for years and he assesses the situation and the helicopter's hovering just overhead, trying not to catch its rotors on the, on the side of the mountain. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty intense. It's really cool. Yeah, actually, I Greg, have you seen it? No, I haven't, but I'm I'm fully in because I was I was just con- uh, really deep into a it's a couple years old now, but a, an Everest docu series, and so um, this sounds like a really natural progression when I'm finished with it. Yeah, yeah, it's the first um, maybe five minutes of the first episode is exactly as Jason puts it. They you know this technical rescuer is descending into this crevasse, and it's deep. It's like you know <laughs> yeah. at, at 30, 40 meters. And as he's going down the ice, Jason, do you remember this? There's like smears of blood down the oh, ice. Yeah, and it just gives yeah. you this foreshadowing like yeah. this is not good. Yeah. This is not yeah. good. This is not a skier who fell and twisted his knee yeah. and needs to be, you know, heloed off the mountain. This is bad. Yeah. And yeah, it's um it it starts out very intense. And I didn't it I'd suggest anybody who wants to watch it, if you think you're gonna be put off by that, just get through the first five minutes, you'll make it. <laughs> um <laughs> And it gets really interesting and it's really like an interesting human look at what they do. So totally cool suggestion. I love it. Good. Awesome. Well, Jason, we are, uh, we're just past like an hour and 15 minutes or so. And I think we, we promised to keep it a little shorter than that, but you know, what are you going to do? You're, you're a great get and a, an awesome raconteur and we'd love to have you back. But thank you for coming. This is fantastic. Yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and Greg, it was really good to meet you. You know, Matt, we've exchanged uh, largely, uh, you know, direct messages over the years and our, our overlapping interests. But Greg, it was really, uh, really a pleasure to meet you as well. And, and I hope, you know, once uh, the world writes itself a bit more, I'll, I'll be back out on the West Coast and we can actually meet in person. That would be fantastic. Hey, this is terrible, terrible form for podcast hosting, but I should have asked you this question before and we'll wrap it up on this <laughs> for real this time. Are, are there plans for a second book? Both Greg and I were early adopters of the book and I blew through it pretty quickly. I've got the, you know, literally been there, got the t-shirt <laughs> and, um, you know, are there plans for, are we going to see Tusker again in print anytime soon? Uh, soon, I'm not sure, but yes, uh, relatively soon. I'm, I'm, I'm targeting late next year for completion. Uh, don't quote me on that, but, uh, I have started, I've got a prologue and a first chapter almost written, um, for the next adventure, um, takes place far from the venue of the last book. Um, very different part of the world, uh, very different plot, but, uh, same hero. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from the first book, so you know, I hope this one's even better. So we'll, we'll see. It's, it's a challenge, you know, I, 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 I learned so much from the first book on how to write a book and, and what to do differently, but it's just a matter of carving out the time. I, I, like I envy like Ian Fleming going to Jamaica for three months and like just being able to get up in the morning and sit and write a novel because I've got, you know, podcasts, Substack, you know, freelance articles and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, man, I just need like unstructured, weeks to kind of just sit and I should go to like a cabin and unplug and just write, I guess. 
but short answer is yes, uh, it will be coming at some point. Fantastic. That literally should have been the first question I asked you. So, you know, <laughs> bad podcast. Host, right? uh, no, no. That anyway, was, was, that was the first bit. That was the first bit of, um, of fiction that I had read in, in, in quite a while. And, um, it was just such a treat. It really was. Oh, good. So I'm glad to hear to it. The next iteration. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll give you a million dollars if Dwight Van Dyke appears as a uh, as a bad guy <laughs> or as a sidekick. He's available for sidekick duty too. <laughs> and uh, and with that, Jason, I think we will let you go. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. All it's right. been great fun. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.